229, probably a 4 iron. That's what they call a double cross, going for the fade, hitting that draw. Oh, double cross. Oh. That's gotta be 150 yards off line. <laughs> this is as bad a shot as Justin Drops will ever hit. He knows it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Double Cross. My name is Ethan Frank, joined as always by Mr. Braden Reed. Braden, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I know we're a few days late behind on this recap, but we're here now. I had an enjoyable weekend watching the golf. It got, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say a little boring towards the end, but I, I had a good time watching it nonetheless. Hey, we had to let everything marinate, sink in, formulate our thoughts and takes. And no, it's not just the it's not just the two of us today. We're also joined by a very special guest. It's Golf.com's news and features editor, an alum of Syracuse University, a WAER sports alum, Mr. James Colgan. James, how are you? Hello, hello, hello. This is uh this feels like I'm sort of stepping into the past a little bit by joining this uh by joining this podcast but truly and only in the best way possible um very excited to be here uh excited to be joining a the rare golf podcast of only syracuse alums only waer alums so uh, until you guys can get to rico on the show i guess i'll be the best uh i'll be the be- next best thing there there is no arguing that um <laughs> so before we get into to brian Harmon's win at the open championship last week where did your golf, you know, we've talked about our golf journeys with the people we've had on. We talked about their golf journeys. Where did your golfing journey start, James, and what led you to pursue it as a full-time career? So I grew up in a household where golf was uh, always sort of on the TV. Uh, both my grandfathers on both sides of my family were huge golfers. And so that sort of filtered down to me through my dad and directly through my grandpa on my mom's side so I grew up a big fan uh, but I I was terrible at playing I was like super athletic you know kid I would play play a bunch of sports and you know constantly out and about but I hated golf because I just wasn't good at it and I didn't like how bad I was at it so I played sparingly and maybe paid attention to you know when Tiger was in the hunt at a major uh, until I got to college, which was uh, when I was hired for my first summer job ever as a caddy at uh, the Rockville Links Club, which is a country club about 15 minutes south of uh, where I'm from in New Hyde Park, New York, um, right on Long Island. And we, you know, basically got the job because I had a family friend who was a member there. So I kind of had it built in that I could uh, get a couple loops out and, you know, would not go totally poor sitting in the caddy yard for the whole summer. Um, And basically like two months into that, uh, I just fell so hard for the game. I just totally got the golf bug Uh, every time that I was, you know, that I could be out on the golf course, whether it was working, whether it was playing, like whatever. I was thinking about golf all the time. I was falling golf all the time. I was caring about golf all the time. Uh, So then for the rest of my summers in college i was a caddy scholarship recipient through the long island caddy scholarship fund and uh i was i mean I, I would intern during the weekdays and i would caddy on the weekends and if there was any time in between for me to golf i would play um so it was a uh, it was a crazy time for me but that was really when i fell in love with golf was in college and then right after school uh i spotted an opening at golf it's a bit of a long story but 
I previously turned down uh, one of our editors for an internship interview uh, because I had gotten another internship. And so uh, a couple months later, I was looking for a job and there was an opening at golf for an assistant editor. And, uh, you know, golf, that's sort of our uh, sort of our entry entry level job is, you know, just writing a bunch of stories kind of notes to the grindstone. So I reached out to our uh, editor who I you know, just a few months earlier had basically said, thanks, but no thanks to for an internship. Uh, and I said, hey, I know it didn't work out last time, but I'm super interested in this job. I'd love to do it. Um, and about a month later, I I was uh, an editor at, at golf.com, golf magazine. And I've been there ever since. I've been there almost four years now. It'll be four years in the end of October. Uh, and yeah, it's been amazing. I uh, travel the world following professional golf. I, uh, you know, get into all sorts of boondoggles in the, in the process of doing so. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an amazing company. I work with some really amazing, very, very talented people. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been an incredible introduction to the sport. I mean, I started at golf. I was, I loved golf, but I was a terrible player because all throughout college, I could hardly ever play. You know, you guys know as well as anyone, the winters in Syracuse are dreadful. Um, but I said, you know, I, I'm starting here. I'm a terrible player, but I'm going to get better. Uh, I'm down to a 10.1 uh, handicap index now. Uh, that's partially by virtue of the amount of golf I play for my job. Um, but yeah, I mean, across the board it's been an amazing experience um and my love for the game has only grown uh even if it has wavered at times in these last uh <laughs> these crazy last 18 months so a little bit more about your game personally i was going to ask you about the handicap we answered that question already i want to hear about your game itself strengths and weaknesses and then personal best and then favorite round you've ever played all right um I would describe my golf game as uh, sort of your your quintessential 20-something uh, PGA Tour player game, sort of prototype game. Uh, I'm a pretty good ball striker, really long off the tee, hit my irons really well. Uh, I'm terrible with my short game. I'm a horrible putter. Uh, and with oh, we should really just combine. Long... We should just combine. I could give <laughs> you my putting, then you'd be on the tour. When things go really wrong for me, uh, the driver starts to get wayward. Um, so I've been slowly but surely fixing that problem uh, over the span of many months of of failures. But we finally had some positive developments when I was over uh, in Scotland and England last week for the Scottish and the British Open. Um, but yeah, I would say as far as uh, favorite round ever played, best round ever played, they're actually one and the same for me. Uh, I played my first ever round of Scottish golf last year at North Berwick. Uh, and I, I played again a couple a week ago now or two weeks ago now. Um, but the first time I played there, I shot uh, the best round of my life. I shot an 82. Um, and truly that was about the worst I could have scored, but I was just so gobsmacked by playing golf in Scotland for the first time. And, you know, you guys will see this one, you know, if you haven't been already, when you go, you'll see like, the way that the sport is in Scotland is just so incredible. And particularly North Berwick is like the, it's in my mind, it's like the essence of Scottish golf. There are dogs running through the fairways. You know, the whole course is common land. There is, there's this crazy, 
you know, two century old parish boundary that like is used in the design of the course. It's a physical wall. It's like in the design of the course. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a crazy golf course, but to this day, it's my favorite golf course in the world. Um, I played there twice and first time I played was the best round of my life. And I went back about a week and a half ago and I said, Hey, you know, maybe I'm overrating this place in my mind. You know, the first time I played, it, it was a beautiful sunny day. Like it was my first round ever in Scotland. I played unbelievable. Like, you know, but I'm probably just overrating this place. It's not that good. And I went out again last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was. And uh, I was not overrating it at all. It is like truly one of the best golf courses on earth. Um, it would be the place that I would tell anyone to start and end a Scottish golf vacation. So yeah, uh, that that is a brief, a brief, probably too long history of my golf game. I'm not particularly good, but I show flashes, and that's uh, <laughs> that's important to me. <laughs> what keeps See, coming? Braden back. like Braden likes to get on me because I I have been on the record saying that if Scotty Scheffler I putted for Scotty Scheffler, he would have an additional two to three major championships already won. <laughs> so so you know, if we just combine forces here, my weaknesses are probably my ball striking and off the tee. Then it seems like it could be in a really good spot here. It seems like we should be getting some sort of Ryder Cup alternate shot situation going here <laughs> because uh, if there's a way we could rig it so that you would you would wind up putting for, you know, 14 of 18 greens, I think we would do pretty well together. <laughs> I think we'd be, I think we'd be in really good shape. Um, <laughs> speaking of the Ryder Cup, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But just you, you talked about being in Scotland. I guess the first place we'll start with what you've been doing over the past couple of weeks is is what is covering golf in Scotland like? What is and then going down to Hoy Lake and Royal Liverpool, what is covering a major championship like? Totally. Uh so I I had been to Scotland last year. And when I went last year, it was not really for work. Um, my coworker, Sean Zock, was living in St. Andrews for the summer. I was planning a trip to Europe at the same time with my girlfriend. Uh, my girlfriend didn't want to take any more vacation on the back end of the trip. And I wanted to have an extra couple of days. I wanted to see another country. So it just so happened to work out that Sean was going to be in Scotland at the same time that I was kind of looking to go somewhere else in Europe. And so I reached out to him. I said, hey, you know, is there any chance I could just hop in with you for a couple of days? You know, I'll sleep on a couch. I'll sleep on the floor. Like, I don't really care. I just want to come. I want to see Scotland. I want to, you know, experience the whole thing for the first time. And I was kind of thinking he was going to be like, ah, I don't know. I got stuff going on. But he was like, no, man, like, absolutely please come like I would love to have you uh so that was my first time over there was a year ago and it was just an unbelievable experience it, it is such a special place for golfers um the environment of the country is built such that uh it, it's built around golf I mean every every course has some element of of public accessibility uh, every course, even the most, you know, beautiful private courses, uh, you know, if you were going from the U.S., you could find a way to get a tea time at. Um, and that's just such an incredible thing as someone who grew up on Long Island, surrounded by all this extremely great, unbelievably private golf. Uh, it's cool to get to go to Scotland and see that, like, you know, that's just not the way that that it is. That's it's it's a totally different sport. Uh, so I was kind of hankering to get back this year because, uh, you know, I wrote about this about a week ago, but 
this has not been a great six month stretch for my uh, love of golf. Um, I've just been so entrenched in the developments of the PGA Tour world and the live world and the framework agreement world. And it's just been exhausting. I mean, the my job in the summers is almost exclusively on the road. It, it's very hard for, you know, relationships and time in my life. And, you know, one of the big things that I try to emphasize is having time with family and friends when I am home. And all of this merger news has made it really, really hard for me to have like any sort of personal life. Uh, and so I decided to go to Scotland sort of in the hopes that uh, I would be able to find some glimmer of something about golf that maybe I had not found. And so again, Sean was over in Scotland, you know, God knows what he was doing this year, but sort of a similar thing, spending a chunk of the summer in England and Scotland ahead of the open. And, uh, he said, you know, why don't you come out and visit me? We'll stay in North Berwick, you know, we'll play golf a couple of days. We'll hang out. So I flew to Scotland for three days for the Scottish open. It was my first time ever covering an international golf event. Um, and I would describe that as pretty similar to covering a PGA tour event. I mean, the golf course was different, but, and the fans were definitely more knowledgeable and less, uh, beer hungry, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it was a overall, like pretty similar experience. Um, but then I hopped on a train and went down to, down to the British open. And that experience was totally different. I mean, the environment, obviously, you know, you're still a golf course, still 18 holes, grandstands the whole thing but the environment around covering the tournament is totally different uh the rna carries the tournament in a very different way than the usga than the pga of america than the masters um totally different it's uh it's it's not necessarily closed off to players but there's also not an abundance of access either uh so that makes it tough if you're trying to get you know exclusive information if you're trying to have some interesting angles that you're working on um, so, you know, I, I was there for the full run all seven days. Uh, it was exhausting. I was sleeping on a sofa bed in a pretty dingy Airbnb for, for seven nights that we were there. The roof in my, um, in my bedroom was leaking. Um, if you could even call it a bedroom. So yeah, it was a, it was a gritty experience for sure, but I, I felt like I came out of it with sort of a renewed appreciation for, what the sport means to people, particularly in the British Isles, um, and also what the sport means to me. I mean, I think, you know, the, the hard thing about about covering this golf so closely in such a divisive time, especially like in the age of, the so of social media, is like people constantly love telling you how much they hate you, basically, and they, they hate what you're doing. Um, but it's kind of helpful to, to go into a place where golf is so appreciated and so loved. Um, because you realize that like, that is, that's the essence of the job. That's why people love reading our work. That's why people follow what we do. That's why we do what we do is because of the, an audience that's so passionate about golf and about the players and the characters and the tournaments. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was, it was, a, that's a very long winded answer, but it was an extremely, uh, heartening time for me as a golf writer uh, it was an extremely beneficial time for me, I think, just as a person. Uh, and while I have been sleeping pretty much nonstop upon my return from this and probably will continue sleeping for several weeks after this, um, I'm, I'm happy I did. I have no regrets about about this whole experience. Um, it was it was incredible. It's very cool. Um, kind of to the point about covering the tournament. I've never been to a tournament on 
I guess, a playing day, a Thursday through a Sunday. I've been to a few practice rounds, Ethan, and I met you at the PGA this year. I guess what what are the differences between watching at home, you know, on your couch or seeing a ton of shots versus being there in person? Obviously, I would imagine it's probably a more personable experience. You gain a little bit more of that exclusive info, but you know, there's pros and cons to both. What do you, again, what do you gain from being there inside the ropes um, in person versus having the benefit of seeing everything basically on TV? I think ultimately our jobs uh, in golf media are, and just any, any sports writing job, I think ultimately your job is to write what you're feeling and what you think other people are feeling. Um, Like just kind of at, at the heart of it. I, I think people are seeking to sort of be understood and the and the writing that they read. Um, and I think that being on site at events uh, really gives you a sense of what uh, people are feeling and, and what they're thinking about um, and what they're talking about. And, you know, I have covered plenty of majors from home and there are ways to do it very interestingly and differently. Um, and there's certainly something to be said for not getting on a plane um, for someone who sleeps as little as I feel like I've slept in the last three months. But there's no substitute for being uh, in the environment. There's no substitute for having the FaceTime with players. Something that's very interesting to me is that, you know, I built relationships with a handful of players now, um, not nearly as many as I would like. But, you know, I've found that the more tournaments I show up to, the more people recognize me when I'm there. Um, and, you know, it happened to me again at the Open this past week. I uh, still kind of trying to make heads or tails of this interaction. But on Saturday, after he shot 63, I wrote a story about John Rahm. Um, and I have spoken to him maybe twice in a, a, you know, in an interview setting before, never prolonged, never really one on one. Um, and as I was kind of standing in the press, like scrum waiting to chat with him, he walked up onto this platform in front of me and he stared directly into my eyes for about six seconds before the press conference started. And honestly, I was terrified in that moment because I was like, man, we all know John Rom. like he is not, he's not exactly, uh, you know, uh, the, the world's uh, friendliest figure at all times. Uh, so I was worried that he might have uh, something to say to me about, you know, something I'd done or whatever. But after we made that eye contact for so long, I was like, okay, I got to ask this guy a question. Like, you know, I, this is like awkward if I don't ask him a question. So I wound up asking him, you know, about sort of to walk me through the uh, internal emotions of, uh shooting 63 because like i will never do that for as long as i live um and i'm curious like well you know what that feels like for you know for the for the player and he gave me this incredible like expansive answer about like you know the whole like experience of doing it and how you finally actually see balls doing what you sort of envision them doing when you when you're standing over your shot it was incredible it's this great answer and after the interview was over, he sort of nodded to me on his way out. And I just like, I mean, I still don't know if he, I mean, maybe there's like some, some rage there or something. I don't know. But uh, it, it's, it made me feel like he knew who I was in that instance. And the funny thing is like, I've never really spoken to John Rom. Like I've never had an interaction. So when it comes to covering events live, uh, I think 
the big advantage, the first advantage is you can feel what people are feeling, and that's ultimately your first and only job. Uh, but the second secondary advantage, and the one that should never be slept on, is the fact that the access you have to players in those moments, uh, it sticks with you. Um, and people recognize it from, you know, when they see you often, they recognize you and they're, and they're willing to speak to you and they're willing to engage with you a little bit more. Uh, so there are advantages to doing it, uh, even if the sleep schedule is not, it's not super helpful. That's awesome. Um, you talked about it with the example with Rom, but kind of, you know, in general, I was curious, obviously I've never had those kind of interactions even on a basic level with professional athletes like that. And I think in general, um, pro athletes just with the media tend to get glamorized a lot and put on a pedestal. What are the large majority of these guys like? We've seen it a little bit more um, with kind of some of the increased coverage, full swing, things like that. We've gotten to see some of these guys' personality more, but are they everyday guys? Do they like the same things we like? What are their what are their idiosyncrasies like? Totally. I think the biggest thing, the biggest difference between like a PGA Tour Pro and the average person is like a PGA Tour Pro, and this is true for every professional athlete, has been the best at golf from the time that he was a child until the present day. And everyone that's around him, uh, and with rare exception, uh, is reinforcing that belief to him that he is the best golfer that they've ever seen. Um, and so, you know, that naturally leads to just a strange uh, environment. I mean, when you have a player, you know, really highly ranked players going to have an agent, they're going to have a manager, they're going to have a caddy, they're going to have a coach, they're going to have a trainer. Um, and they might have, you know, someone from their family around or whatever, like that's just barrier to entry. Like that's, who's going to be there. Um, those people, almost all of them are being paid a salary by the player. So, you know, there's an environment there where, you know, it's, and it's not, it's not like a, a disingenuous environment, but there's an environment where, you know, those people are sort of supporting the image of the golfer, whoever they are. Um, so it does, it does lead to some, uh, to some occasional awkwardness of just generally like, you know, what, uh, hang on, I'm, I'm disconnecting here. Um, it does lead to some occasional awkwardness as far as, uh, as far as like, you know, general self-perception or whatever. Uh, but on the whole, I would say, you know, almost all of the guys that I deal with on a regular basis are pretty normal people to be interacting with. They're not divas. They're not, you know, they're not blowing you off with very rare exception. And even the most famous players, like I've found are even more willing to kind of engage um, but they're the biggest thing, I think, because of the way that the environment is set up is there's a big trust factor there and it's hard to kind of get yourself into the circle of trust. Um, but once you've done that, like it's very easy to interact. Guys are, get along really well, very friendly, very happy to hang out, but it's hard to get inside that circle of trust. And, you know, especially when there are agents involved and whatever, it gets even harder because they know who you are from the second you walk up to them. And they know that, you know, there are times when me going up to speak to a player uh, is not the best thing for that player's public image. Uh, it might be an important thing for me. It might be an important thing for them, but it might not make them look very good. Um, and so the awkwardness that you kind of deal with along the way is uh, just generally like, it, I mean, it, it comes with the job, but that is one of the more interesting things about, you know, 
dealing with professional athletes and particularly professional golfers, there's uh there's definitely a different energy there. Uh, but I would say for the most part, it's been pretty good. Makes sense. Um, real quick, before we get to the open, is there one guy that you've kind of developed back and forth with a bit of a rapport more than any others? I wouldn't say more than, I don't, I wouldn't say there's like one guy that I'm extremely close with. There, there are a, a bunch of guys that I would say I've like fairly good relationships, um, with one, one of the funnier ones was, uh, Will Zalatoris. Um, I had written a game story about him finishing in second at like, you know, every major that he finished in second at basically. Um, and this, and it was like in the span of a year and it was by accident. I just kept getting thrown into these stories and like, I would just stumble into like, you know, him writing him as like the loser of the tournament. And, you know, I'd written a couple other stories about him, like just, you know, across the board, whatever. But I'd never really spoken to him other than in an interview setting. Um, and I'd always admired him from afar because I thought he was incredibly earnest. He was incredibly, you know, forthright. Even when he dealt with, you know, these soul-crushing losses at the U.S. Open particularly, he would, you know, stand in front of the media, speak very candidly, you know, be be very vulnerable and honest with himself. I thought that was a really, really admirable thing. And I sort of wrote that in one of the stories that I wrote, um, but whatever. I mean, you write so much stuff, you kind of get numb to the fact that people are actually reading it. So anyway, this year, it's the Players' Championship, and I'm writing a story about the sort of Netflix effect in pro golf. And I noticed that Will was not in the show, although he was kind of featured in it. So I just went up to him, you know, on the side, and I was just like, Hey, you know, just wanted to say hi, like, was wondering if I could ask you a question about this, whatever. Um, not thinking, you know, in any way that we we're going to have any sort of interaction. Well, lo and behold, I guess he must have seen one of the stories, read one of them or multiple of them, whatever. We wound up talking for like 20 minutes, just like standing off the 18th green, just, just you know, shooting the breeze about life and how he's doing and how he's feeling and all this stuff. Um, and we had never spoken prior to that. Like, I mean, we, I'd asked him a question in an interview or whatever, but like never in a one-on-one -on -one setting before. Um, and so that was like kind of a good, good lesson for me, a good moment for me. They're like, okay, people, especially players actually see what you write about them. Um, and while it can be easy to kind of throw in a jab at someone who, you know, you might not perceive as being acting in the best way or whatever, um, they're seeing that. And they're forming their opinions on you based off of that. And that doesn't mean to, you know, not be fair or to not be critical if the situation calls for it. And if you read my writing, you'll absolutely know that I have no problem being critical. Um, but I think it, it it gives me an appreciation of picking my spots with that and when I should be doing that. Uh, and, and especially with Will, it was just like kind of this funny moment of like, wow, okay, this guy like actually knows who I am, like feels like he knows who I am. Um, and like, we've never spoken. So, so yeah. So that's one guy who I have a pretty good relationship with. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, like covering the sport, your access is so limited, but these moments kind of shine through where you realize, you know, guys are seeing what you do and, and reading your work and seeing your social media posts and all of that.
it feels like that's different in golf compared to any other sport where I don't know, maybe this is just having golf brain, but it feels like golfers are a little more in tune with what it is said about them because they're individuals and they're not part of a team. Like maybe, you know, it's different for, you know, a star basketball player or a star quarterback or, or whatnot, but you know, for your every man, you, you know, there are 53 guys on an NFL roster. There are 15 guys on an NBA roster. I mean, there's one golfer you are, it's all about you. So that guys are, there's more, you know, you talked about how many different guys these players have around them, whether it's their caddy or their coach or their manager, or their agent, all of these people are telling them these things and like, Oh, go read this. Someone wrote this about you, or someone said this about you, wherever it was. It just feels like golf is a little more in tune with that. Um, you talked about perception earlier with John Rom, some guy, an, a guy who's, you know, our perceptions of him have changed is Brian Harmon who won the, the open championship. Uh, just, I guess it feels like it was forever ago now. It's only Friday. Um, but I, maybe, you know, since you were there, James, it may not feel like it was that long ago. But, you know, people are calling him the Butcher of Hoy Lake. I wanted to get your take on that nickname um, and just watching him for four days absolutely dominate aside from, you know, his early parts of Saturday and Sunday before he turned it into gear and really eliminated all questions about him. The Butcher of Hoy Lake is a very accurate term, um, considering his uh, considering the way he played this week. Uh, I think the best thing you could say about how Brian Harmon played is that he absolutely sucked the life out of that golf tournament for three days. Um, and that is that is all credit to him. I mean, there is no argument to be made that another player deserved to win that tournament more. No argument to be made that another player played better than him all week. Like, none whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, I think that's completely accurate <laughs> uh, depiction of his win. Um, I think selfishly, as someone who writes about the sport, um, I was rooting for there to be more interesting stories to come out of Saturday and Sunday at the tournament. It's not to say I was rooting against Brian. I just wanted to see someone kind of make a charge. And, you know, suddenly if if it becomes a if Brian Harmon runs away with the open, the only story is Brian Harmon runs away with the open. Right. And then you got a couple stories about guys who played well and lost and guys who played poorly and lost. But like. The story is Brian Harmon. If Brian Harmon plays well at the Open and then John Rahm shoots 63-63 and they wind up dueling down the stretch on Sunday at the Open, all of a sudden you've got a story about Brian, you've got a story about John, you've got a story about the duel, you've got a story about how the tournament came alive on Sunday. Like you've you've quadrupled the, the amount of interest in a story about Brian Harmon being the winner of this tournament ultimately. Uh, so selfishly, I was rooting for rooting for there to be a little bit more life on Sunday afternoon. Uh, but there is no doubting that he was the deserving winner of the tournament. It was unbelievable how many putts he made. Uh, he did it while the crowd was pretty aggressively rooting against him, which was also very impressive for, especially for a player of his sort of relative inexperience in the major settings. I thought that was incredible the way that he responded to adversity and like literally didn't miss a putt for four days. Um, but yeah, I mean, across the board, overall, was very impressed with his performance. He's an extremely deserving winner. Um, and, you know, he's uh, he's a guy who's we're now going to be seeing on the Ryder Cup team and, you know, might have a little bit of a career renaissance as a result of this performance. Um, if there's a big takeaway from Hoy Lake specifically, it's that I think this golf course is built for someone to win by a lot of strokes. 
Um, I think if you look back at the open history at this, at this course specifically, it's very flat. Um, there's not, you know, the bunkering is obviously the defense of the course, but like there, there are pretty obvious places to miss. There's not as much deception as there is at a place like St. Andrews. Um, and I think, you know, what you saw is if someone can hit their spots all week, um, and especially, you know, if someone can f put themselves in a position to have f makeable putts, there's not a lot happening on the greens. They're, they're pretty flat. Um, so if you can put yourself in a position to succeed and you're rolling the rock pretty well, you can run away with the tournament here. And I think that's what happened when Rory won in 2014. I think it's what happened when Tiger won in 2006. Um, and I think we just happened to see it with a guy who was not Rory or Tiger, uh, but Brian Harmon. And I mean, I think that's the risk you run when, I mean, any year at the Open, that's the risk you run. Uh, just the nature of the golf course, it tends to lend itself to, uh, you know, to a, a bigger winner. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was abundantly obvious this year. And I know there's been plenty of flack about the lack of juice around Brian's win and all of that. But I mean, there's no arguing that he didn't deserve it. Yeah, I, you touched on it a little bit there, especially towards the end. But I just I wanted to get your take on that whole conversation, that whole question, like were we due for a bit of a letdown of a tournament? Were we due for, you know, a bit of a boring kind of sounds harsh, but just with all the cool major duels, all the cool major winners, the big names winning, it just feels like everybody's come to expect that, right? Like the storylines coming into the week, you know, can Rory get it done here again? What's Tommy going to do being a local guy? And then a five, eight ball dude just peppers greens from 180 yards and makes every putt. And it's over like halfway through Saturday. So I, I mentioned it towards the beginning of the show, like not to say that Brian didn't deserve it at all. Like you said, played fantastic, fantastic golf in every right deserved to win this tournament. But, you know, part of me was sitting there on Sunday, almost rooting against him, like wanting somebody to make a charge as a golf fan. Again, not that he didn't deserve it, but was there any part of you sitting there, I know you mentioned it from a writing perspective, all the stories that came out of it, but as a golf fan, um, I don't know where your player allegiances lie, but was there any part of you that said, you know, I hope he falters a little bit and hope we get, you know, a bit closer of a Sunday? You know, I think, uh, um, so obviously I saw the Golf Digest story that wound up, you know, that Joel Beal wrote the story that golf was due for a dud. And then Lee Westwood wrote a column in the Telegraph talking about how, uh, you know, that was like a rude thing to say to Ben Harmon. Um, the honest answer to that is that Joel was 100%. The, the, what he was arguing is not that Brian was an unworthy champion or that the tournament was not entertaining to watch because of Brian. It was that the tournament was just not that compelling from from beginning to end that's just simply the truth like that there's not there's no counter argument to that the the tv ratings support that this was the worst watched open since a monday finish on espn in 2015 like people did not care about this event so you know that is not a slight against brian the way he played is unbelievable and he deserves the claret jug this and a hundred times over um, but the argument that this was not an interesting golf tournament, I, I like, I don't think that that's like a, a matter of subjectivity. Like 
that's a matter of objectivity as far as I'm concerned. Like the the numbers tell us that the you know the general environment around the tournament tells us that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't think that uh, as much as I uh, understand Lee's, uh, I guess, gripes with this situation, um, I I don't I I thought it was a completely justified opinion to have, and I also was definitely feeling it myself. Yeah, I said as someone who I would make the argument that I watched more of this golf tournament than anyone else because of what I had to do for for my job last weekend that I was watching from the first tee time every day and the only time and then when I got home from work after you know the early wave had finished I was sitting down and watching on TV that I found myself on Saturday and Sunday dozing off at times and I would worriedly wake up that I missed something and I really didn't miss anything. And that is often not a feeling I get during golf. I'm, I mean, I'm a certified, not a person who takes naps, but you know, this, I think of all the majors we've seen over, you know, the past few years, I guess, you know, I guess you think post pandemic, we, we could start in 2021, I guess. I, I mean, Scotty in 2022 at the masters was kind of a runaway, but there was, there was a little excitement there. Hideki kind of ran away with the masters in, in 2021. There was a little excitement there when Xander started making a charge and he hit it in the water. But besides that, every major had been pretty much down the stretch uh, besides those masters. And, you know, it, it was the kind of tournament where, you know, if you dozed off for half an hour or 45 minutes on the couch, you probably weren't going to miss anything because Brian Harmon, I mean, just some stats that I found courtesy of, of Justin Ray on Twitter, Americans to win the open by six shots. Brian Harmon joins Tiger Woods, Johnny Miller, Arnold Palmer, Walter Hagen, and Bobby Jones. It, it's a pretty good list. The guy made, yeah. I don't know, it was 58 of 59 putts inside of 10 feet or 59 of 60, something absolutely. And obviously that's including tap-ins and whatnot, but he averaged less than one and a half putts per hole for the week. 106 putts over 72 holes of golf. That's the fewest by an open champion in the last 20 years. And every time he struggled, he immediately bounced back. I think I saw another stat that was he made six bogeys on the week and immediately following four of them made a birdie on the very next hole. It's like, so he struggled Saturday and Sunday, made two bogeys in the first four holes Saturday, two bogeys in the first five holes on Sunday, but then immediately was able to calm himself down and was fine. So, you know, we could, t I want to talk about the crowd a little bit. You mentioned it earlier that a crowd that was rooting against him. Braden is a certified Tommy guy has said that, you know, Tommy Fleetwood might be his favorite golfer. Um, <laughs> and it was clear that the crowd was rooting very hard for Tommy. And I mean, the quote that, that stuck out to most people, I'm sure stuck out to you was when Brian Harmon said that a fan said to him, you don't have the stones for this. And that kind of snapped him back into gear on Saturday. So what was the crowd like? And what did you make of some of the things that Harmon said after the round on Sunday? I remember reading uh, after the 2018 Masters about how the crowd sort of, uh, I guess, a national where everyone is reverential and, you know, everyone, even the fans are like scared to step in the wrong place. Um, I remember reading that the crowds were just sort of like, you know, lukewarm towards Patrick Reed as he came up the 18th. Um, well, can you blame him? Uh, well, that's kind of how I felt when I was watching, when I was watching Brian, I'd, 
I had never fully understood that until until this moment um, of watching him on Sunday. I think, you know, British Open crowd or Open Championship crowds always want a, a British winner. They want someone from the UK to to take it home. You know, it's like rooting for an American to win to win the U.S. Open. It's the same sort of thought process. So there's that baked into it already. And then you've got the fact that like these people want to see like a worthy champion, um, especially the people of like Liverpool, the local area um, who want this tournament to come back here again. They know that, you know, the future of this tournament is coming to Royal Liverpool is sort of dependent on the performance of the golf course and the players here. Um, so you have all of these things kind of working together at one time. And then you have a guy like Brian leading the tournament who is, you know, pretty unassuming player in, in all aspects of his game. Um, and I think it was just the perfect storm for a crowd to be just really railing against a player. And that was kind of what we got. I mean, I think I, I wasn't like, I didn't think it was like ugly at any points in time, but it was just like, you know, everyone was very polite, but you could tell there was a decided lack of energy towards him uh, that when he was inside the, you know, ropes, walking around, you could feel the energy was much larger towards everyone else. I think, I don't know, just kind of following up on that, like, I think it would have been a lot different, obviously, if it's, you know, obviously Rory or Tommy out there winning up by five or six, the energy would have been through the roof. Like, even if it's someone like Rom or even a big name American that is just out there dominating that golf course and beating the pulp out of everybody, like, that's a different story, but it it felt a little bit more so that it was because it was Brian Harmon. Again, no disrespect to Brian, but like the fact that it was this guy doing it more so than it was the fact that he was winning the golf tournament by a ton. Well, right. Think about Shane Lowry in 2019. He was up by a lot, but it was, it was Shane Lowry winning the open in, I guess in Northern Ireland at Port Rush. Not he's Irish, but you know, kind of, you know, it's, it's a little similar. It, it was, you know, the home crowd having that kind of effect, because when you have a runaway winner like that, it, it, and it's someone the home crowd supports that, it, you know, everyone's cheering. Yeah. This is sort of like the whole, the, this was the thing that I disagreed with about Lee's column, other than the fact that he clearly didn't read Joel's story um, and wrote a column about it anyway. Um, uh, the thing that I really disagreed with is he said, well, if this was Tiger, this would have been the story of the year. And I thought that's exactly the point. If it was Tiger, it would have been the story of the year, but it wasn't Tiger. And so it wasn't as interesting. Like that is literally the entire point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that was the whole thing with the crowd too. It's like, if this had been Rory running away with the tournament, of course the crowd would have been going nuts. Like it's Rory and he's winning a tournament. He's running away with it. But you know, golf specifically is a sport that's dependent upon its stars. It's dependent upon the big guys, you know, making, making noise and, and, you know, making headlines. And in this event, the winner was not part of that crew. And the, again, that does take anything away from him, but it, it does, you know, speak to the general lack of energy around the event. I want to get into Brian. Uh, we could talk more about Brian Harmon and his dominance, but like there, there really isn't that much to talk about. I mean, his iron play was terrific. He made like a couple mistakes, but otherwise his putting was terrific. I want to talk about his hunting because it seemed like the, the British media had a fat infatuation with, with Brian Harmon's hunting. I, I have a, 
uh, KVV, who you talked about earlier, had transcribed it, an interaction. I'm guessing it was uh, after his presser Sunday. Here, it was a reporter asked, "Will you perhaps buy a new rifle?" And Harmon said, "I use a bow and arrow." The reporter said, "From what distance are you most deadly?" And Harmon said, "You wouldn't want to be standing in front of me." I I just thought that that was an awesome back and forth, just reading it and just imagining you know the accents. Harmon with his southern accent and a, a British reporter asking those questions, just not like fully grasping exactly what what Brian Harmon's hunting is like, because it uh, seems like it seems like he hunts you know like and actually eats the the animals that he hunts that he's not just going out there and killing for yeah. sport no yeah brian brian is definitely i thought it was very interesting actually hearing him talk about his hunting experience he like is like a very serious like you know i'm taking this thing from the earth so that i can feed my family and you know all of this stuff so he, he definitely uh he definitely is is sort of an ethical hunter if such a thing exists um, but you could tell that the British media was looking for a soundbite about Brian Harmon buying like some sort of massive like AR-15 style rifle um, so he could prove himself like this ugly American champion. Um, and he just like wouldn't give them that because that's not really how he is. Um, so it was kind of funny watching that back and forth happen just over and over again <laughs> during the course of the uh, the press conferences on Saturday and on Sunday. I saw or heard the comments about the tractor too. I think like they just couldn't really wrap the head around the fact that he was going to go buy a tractor and drive that around his ranch. They were like, what? I, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. I, there's just like a fundamental cultural difference between the elite British tabloid media and like Brian Harmon. I think that's just the easiest way to describe it. They're just fundamentally different in a lot of ways. Um, I guess one more thing on, Harmon before we kind of get into everybody else we'll talk more about the Ryder Cup leader but or Ryder Cup later but it seems pretty entrenched in this Ryder Cup at this point um I guess looking forward a little bit towards Rome is this a guy that you're excited about whether or not he makes it on points or even just ends up being a captain's pick I'm not sure how that exact qualification will work you know towards the FedEx Cup playoffs but you know going to a course like Marco Simone in Italy kind of where do you see him fitting in to this Ryder cup team is, is an exciting prospect having him there? I think he's uh I think he's a, he's going to be a very valuable player to this team. Um, the look at us Ryder cup teams, historically playing in Europe. Uh, the issue is always, they don't have anyone who can keep it, you know, between the uprights and they don't have anyone who can putt. Um, those two things would seem to be Brian's extensive strengths as a golfer um and particularly his putting prowess is something that has long sort of been lacking from this from this u.s team um i worry about some of the players that uh are kind of looking like they'll be on the roster or near the roster this feels like sort of the classic american Ryder cup construction where you're like oh well you know this tournament this team would shoot 75 under combined at you know tpc deer run so we'll send him over to marco simone and like hope for the best like to me they should it would be wise to build a Ryder cup team based on the best match play players and i think in a, a lot of ways brian's going to make it on this team by virtue of of you know the automatic qualifier 
but I, and in a, in a lot of ways, I'm glad because I think that he's kind of the classic guy that this team would be lacking in a, in a Ryder Cup setting, particularly playing in Europe where it's going to be narrow. It's going to be firm and fast and putting is going to be a huge emphasis. Uh, so I think he'll be a valuable player. My guess is he'll probably wind up sitting out a fair amount of the tournament. But like you can't hide everyone for the entirety of the Ryder Cup. They got to play on Sunday. Most guys will get at least one of the four sims or four ball matches on Thursday and Friday. So, or sorry, on Friday and Saturday. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's going to be a, uh, I think he's going to, he's going to be a, a factor on the team. And honestly, I think he'll wind up outperforming some of the other players on the roster. If you're the captain of Team USA, is there one guy that you are certainly pairing him with in the four ball or the foursomes? Man, I think Scotty would be an interesting would be an interesting counterpart for him in alternate shot. I think uh I think as far as uh just generally the way that he's played this year, I think he could be a good kind of counterpart to Scotty's just blazing skills from T to Green. Um but yeah, I don't I don't know that there's any guy on the team that he would that he would be a very poor match with. Like another guy who could be a good fit with him in alternate shot is Cam Young who is a dreadful putter, but, you know, pretty good from tee to green. Like, you know, I think you would want to balance those skills. So I think you would want to pair him with like a real ball striker, like a real shot maker. So that kind of limits your options, I guess. But I mean, yeah, I think, I think Scotty or, uh, or uh, Cam Young would be, would be pretty good pairs for him. I the person that came to my mind was Wind. I think Wyndham Clark could also be someone who who hits the crap out of the ball. Hits it. That's really a great far. one. Um, I think the two of them could be. You know, your two your last two one. major champions. Um, but we could save that a little bit later. Yeah, um, totally. Going down, you know, looking at the rest of the leaderboard a little bit. You know, you had your conglomerate at at T two. You talked about John Rom and his sixty three on Saturday. I was personally on Sunday hoping that it would be John Rom was the guy that would make a run, and that I mean that he was the most capable of making a run to put some pressure on on Brian Harmon. But he he just he it, it just wasn't there for him. Uh, we talked a little bit in the preview about Tom Kim. Uh, I do want to ask about Tom Kim. People are saying that Tom Kim was playing up his ankle injury when the cameras were on him. Uh, I don't know if what you saw of Tom Kim and his ankle injury, uh, but it seemed it was reported that he had a green grade one like ligament issue, which is just like you turned your ankle and you have a sprained ankle. Um, so I, I'd love to get into the the Tom Kim. Uh, uh, injury gate it hurt injured maybe neither uh what did you see from tom kim uh he was he was pretty banged up i will say in his defense his ankle was pretty swollen it was looking pretty nasty and he wound up wding from from the win of championship as a result of it so i think it i think it was it was pretty real um i think uh you know it, it's hard to know like how, how much it was affecting him. He obviously played it really well. Um, but that being said, like, I know for a fact that he was like in pretty constant uh, rehab, like kind of working with trainers and doctors, like more or less nonstop. Um, you know, we can always kind of, uh, kind of point fingers at the golfers as athletes thing. And I certainly, uh, 
I'm one of the people who likes to be a skeptic at, when it comes to that, but I think this was a real injury that he was dealing with. So you had Rom, Tom Kim, the other guys at T2, Sepp Straka. Very, I thought a very, very impressive performance. What? Ethan, we can't, what? we can't just gloss over Tom Kim like that after what we talked about after the U.S. Open. James, uh, Ethan called Tom Kim's T8 at the U.S. Open fake and that he hadn't seen enough. Which it was, it was a, a bit fluffy. of a, it was a little bit of a Wikipedia yellow square, but it was a yellow square nonetheless. And then goes out T two at the open. Ethan, uh, are you ready to say sorry to Tom Kim yet? I'm very impressed with Tom Kim's performance. <laughs> um, it was gritty, shooting sixty eight, sixty seven on the weekend. I think it was very is very on impressive ankle. on a on a palm ankle. Um, I guess my counterpoint is is that it still didn't really feel like we saw any Tom Kim shots watching on television until he was at like the 13th hole on Sunday. So, I mean, when you shoot 68, 67 on the weekend, that means he shot even par the first two days. So he kind of came, you know, once again in the back door to, to get in a T2, a T2, very impressive. I'll issue a half apology. Once I see right. Tom Kim, I'll issue a half apology. All I'm going to uh, say, how how old are the two of you? How old are Tom you? Kim, we have this. Uh, Tom, we we did discern this that Tom older Kim than him. is younger than us. Yeah, we are older than Tom Kim. Yeah. Okay, that's all I'm going to say in defense of of Tom in this in this instance. All right, he's a really young guy. I think uh, I wrote about this at the Scottish Open. Um, he uh, he burst onto the scene last year. Like, there's no two ways about it. Um, I was. I don't know. I I I generally think that it was good for him to have so much success early, but I think that that changed a lot of the the sort of uh, calculus of his career. Um, and you can tell that he's a different guy now than than he was a year ago. You know, not better or worse, but just very different, much more reserved. So I think the last year has been a big learning experience for him and i think the golf has come slowly along with it but he's so young and he's so talented like he, he's gonna be hanging around for a long time here like i just i can't i can't see a world in which he's not sort of looming around the majors so while i appreciate the back door uh <laughs> I, I appreciate the the discussion on it i'll just offer that in his defense that you know He's he's still an incredibly young and very very talented player. That's fair. I can accept that. Um, Sepp Straka won John Deere and then T two at the Open. I'm a little frightened by him going for the Ryder Cup, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and then Jason Day. Uh, honestly, it felt like Jason Day winning the Byron Nelson was everything he was building to. Um, and then he kind of disappeared for what felt like two months. Um, and then just reappeared here at the open to finish T2. I don't know how much James you saw of Jason day, but it kind of felt like this came out of nowhere that he hadn't really done anything in, in, you know, his recent appearances. Yeah. I, I saw a fair amount of Jason day. Actually, there was a bit of side side wagering going on between uh, a member of the golf.com video staff Um about about uh jason day's performance so i was actually paying pretty close attention to him uh as as a result of that um he played unbelievably well i think uh it was, it's cool like i've seen him at all stages of this kind of comeback i saw him at the masters when he was talking about kind of fighting his way back to number one in the world which i thought was absolutely insane at the time but he's played unbelievably well for the last like 
six to eight months. He's been he's just been a very consistent player. Um, and I thought it was very impressive how well he played considering the conditions on Sunday. I've, I've never thought of him as being a guy who would play well in links conditions with sideways rain and, you know, everything that comes with that. But he played really, really well the whole day. So credit to him. He, I, I was really, really impressed with his performance. Another stat from Justin Wright, and this, this makes Jason Day the, I believe, ninth player to finish runner-up in all four majors in his career, joining Dustin wow. Johnson, Phil Mickelson, Jack Nicholas, Greg Norman, Louis Eustazen, Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, and Craig Wood. Which, I mean, you know, finishing second in, in a major is is not something Jason Day probably wants to do at this point. He probably wants to win that second major, and he probably should have two majors at this point. But that is still, I mean, that is a list of some all-time golfers, some Hall of Fame golfers, and some of the greatest players ever. So I'd say that's a that's a pretty worthwhile accomplishment for Mr. Day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a very talented guy who also has done a lot of, like, played a lot of really good golf in, in his life. He's just, he's been around for a very long time. And I think it's easy with some of these guys to forget how difficult it is to be so good for such a long period of time, but he's like going on a decade at, at the top of the sport. Um, so I, I, I am definitely an appreciator of Jason day uh, and an appreciator of the way that he played this past weekend. I want to talk about Rory a little bit. T6 at six under went 71, 70, 69, 68 consistent. Um, never really felt like he was super in it. Kind of another name that everyone was waiting for a charge and never really got. Obviously the huge storyline um, going on a decade, not winning a major. Uh, I don't know. Personally, fantastic story. Arguably the greatest gener- player of our generation. For me personally, it's kind of getting old at this point. Um, the love that Rory has gotten over the last few years and not to say he hasn't contended, he's been there, but hasn't been able to close. So James, I don't know where you are on him, um, you know, as a fan, just as a player, obviously he's close. Do you think he gets back over the hump at some point? I thought Brandel was a little aggressive by saying he was past his physical prime, but you know, that's, that's Brandel, that's golf channel for you. What are you going to do? Hey, that's um, my guy. Hey, <laughs> calm down. Uh, where where are you at with Rory? Is this is he is he is he going to break through one of these days? Yeah, I think he is. Um, I really I think he is going to. I think he has one more major in him before the end of his career. I mean, maybe it's more than one. Um, but I I think he has one more in him, and I think it will be the story of this six to eight year stretch in golf from tiger's masters win when when it does happen um he's just too good and he's been too good for too long and he's been at the center of all of this stuff for too long um it is exhausting like I, and trust me it is exhausting to no one more than rory like he knows the what the narrative is about his golf game he knows what the narrative is about the way that he plays at majors he knows when he goes three under through five to start the day on Sunday, everyone in the world is logging into Twitter and talking about the fact that, oh, here comes Rory backdoor second place, you know, whatever. Like he's not he's not oblivious to this stuff. Um, so, you know, I think it's uh, I think when you look at his his performances over the last couple of years, you know, 
there's clearly some sort of mental block there. He's he's just pushing too hard during the majors. And I don't know what the solution is. He's tried everything in the last 10 years. So I'm not trying to offer that there is a solution, but I think it's so noticeable um, how much more like enjoyed or how much, or what's the best way to say that? How much more uh, fun he seems to be having when he's playing on the PGA Tour than when he is playing in a major. Um, and, you know, the majors are, are different, obviously, but he seemed the, the total, the tenor of his body and his body language and everything about it seems to change when he is, you know, playing in a major championship, when he has those, those situations. So I don't know. I think there's just a, the, the key to all of this is going to be a little bit of good luck or maybe a lot of good luck. It's going to be another strong performance and it's going to be him kind of coming to a level of, of internal peace about whatever the outcome is. Um, and I, I just, I don't think he's there yet. So I think we're just going to keep kind of doing this until he gets there. Uh, but rest assured, you know, as tiring as this might've felt for a lot of golf fans, like we're going to be doing it again, come April when we go back to Augusta and he has the chance to finish off the, the, you know, career grand slam uh, at the masters. So uh, it's exhausting. Yes. But I think it's one of the most compelling stories in the sport right now. And as much as I am like personally uh, tired for him, for the fact that he's had to, had to face the music for this for so long. Um, I'm also, uh, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that he's going to break through in this eventually. I just don't think there's any way he's, he just has too much talent not to do it. Yeah. Ethan and I talked about it the week before winning the Scottish the week before, like it's really hard to go back to back how much that played into it. And you mentioned it, just the crushing pressure of winning four so early on and then being expected to whatever, get to eight, get to 10 and just all of those expectations. And then over the course of the last two years with all the PGA and lift stuff, He's been the poster child for that. Like, I don't blame him at all for taking a bit of a step back from the media perspective. I think you make a great point where there seems to be a little bit of a mental block. And, you know, I think taking a little of that media responsibility away and just focusing on the golf will certainly help him. I hope he does. Like, for his sake, it's not that I'm a Rory hater, but it's just all the storylines are getting a little bit old. Um, but you mentioned the one you think he has one more in him. Do you have anywhere nailed down on where that happens? Is there one place you think he, he gets the fifth? I mean, it would just be fitting if it was at Augusta. I think I want it to be at Augusta. Just the, the, the storyteller inside of me is rooting for it to be at Augusta. Um, but yeah, I honestly, I really, really thought it was going to be uh, at St. Andrews last year. That just seemed so preordained to be the moment. Um, and it's, I mean, it still feels that way to me. I, I can only imagine how he must feel about that right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's really, uh, I think, I think it's going to be like in a big moment for the sport. And if it's going to happen, let it be Augusta. Cause man, that would be a really satisfying way to, to end all of this. I think in listening to you guys talk about that, that it, you know, I don't mean to bring this back to Brooks because, you know, Braden and I are certified Brooks guys, but it makes his win at the PGA, I think, that much more impressive 
that he was able to actually get it done because I'm sure, I mean, maybe he goes about his business differently and I'm sure he does mentally, but going about trying to win that fifth major when he hadn't done it in four years, still you have that mental block. We saw what happened to him at Augusta on Sunday and how, you know, he, he kind of, I mean, he did fall apart down the stretch and really it was over on the 14th hole, but I I don't know if Brooks getting the fifth and passing Rory, having now won five majors since Rory won his fourth is making Rory push harder or if it's, you know, a helping motivation or if it's a hurting motivation because he sees that one of his peers has passed him by. I think it's a little bit of a different situation. Like, yes, breaking through for the fifth after not having one obviously brooks is a little bit of less time but like just there wasn't anywhere close to as much pressure on brooks i think just with him going to live like it was a conversation i think certainly was legitimate and held value that him going to live might have genuinely been a good thing for him besides just the money like not the week-to-week grind of playing on the pga tour because the whole thing with brooks was you know he just gets up for the major so if he can go you know screw around on the live tour and then ramp up for the majors that helps him. So I think, I think it's a little bit different. I think Rory had a lot more external pressure um, other than just, you know, the actual golf itself, which I think certainly played a role in it. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I fully agree. I I think, I, I don't think that that Rory looks as much around as, as we kind of think that he does. He's obviously very aware, but I don't think he spends a lot of his days like really looking at what the career accomplishments of like the players in his era are. I think he's more focused on the players of uh, past eras and comparing comparing himself. Um, and I think also a lot of it's just internally placed pressure. He he sees what the conversation is. He knows what people are talking about and saying about him and writing about him. Um, and I don't think that's going to change, you know, like, I, I think that's always how it's going to be with him. So I don't know that that's fully externally applied. I mean, I'm sure when he sees Brooks, you know, lapping the field at the PGA, like it's in his head, but I don't think that it's, uh, I don't think it's the first focus of his. Of his. So I think that's really all there is to Rory. I, you look at the rest of the top 10, shout out Matthew Jordan, finishing a tied for 10th at his home club. Um, really cool story. Um, Max, Max Homa. I, I know his top 10, a little scummy finish coming in the back door to finish top 10. Sign um, of life, and it, yeah, it's like, you know, it's better than what it had been. Anything is improvement from, from where he had been. And then Tommy also finishing in a tie for 10th. We know how big he is at getting yellow squares on his Wikipedia page. He made a six on 17 on Sunday. He was, I mean, when they cut the camera to him and he was so far over the green, that was cool. Um, any of those three guys that interested you storyline wise, James, that you wrote about that, that you had an affinity for um, over the weekend? Man, Tommy, Tommy's uh, run there was, again, it's kind of like Rory last year at, at St. Andrews. You know, it was, uh, there was a real sense of inevitability. Like, this is it. This is going to be the moment for him when he's going to break through. Um, I think we, on Saturday, it was the first time I realized that it definitely was not going to happen. But for a second there on Thursday, as I was following him, 
and he was posting a pretty low number uh, after all the pressure and all the conversation at the beginning of the week. Um, I was like, man, maybe he is built for this moment. Like maybe he's ready for this. Um, and that, that was, that was one of the cooler moments in my week was just seeing the crowd around him and kind of envisioning in my head, like, man, what is Sunday going to look like if he's, if he's still in contention here? Um, it obviously didn't come to fruition, but that was a story that I was, that I was following pretty closely. Um, and then you mentioned Matthew Jordan too. That was, uh, that was an epic story. That was just such a fun one. You know, he was sort of the Michael block of this past week in golf, um, but he seemed to oh, handle you it. You can't you can't compare anyone to Blocky. He he seemed to handle it with uh with <laughs> with the proper grace um and energy that came with it. So yeah, it was a uh it was a cool story. It was one that uh it was one that I'll remember fondly for uh for the rest of my rest of my time. You can't help but wonder if, you know, maybe there was a little external pressure put on Tommy by the fact that a certain American podcaster, you know, made the journey on Saturday night to Royal Liverpool to go see Tommy potentially win the, the open championship. Yeah. Um, but that was a fun storyline to follow. I don't know if you caught any of, of those interactions between uh, uh, Tron Carter of no laying up following Tommy after flying overnight on Saturday night with his guy trailing by, I think seven shots uh, at, at Hoy Lake. It was uh I mean, that was one of the most ill-fated decisions I think I've, I've ever seen. But I never, I didn't see him around the around the course. I was I was looking out for him on Sunday, um, but I did see some of his uh, no laying up compatriots uh, on Sunday morning, and they seemed as bamboozled by the entire thing as uh, as we did. So yeah, it was a truly wild experience. But hey, I mean, it was an interesting story on Sunday to major. So we'll we'll give him that at least. Yeah. Well, we right now we're talking that one day I hope to care about something as much that I could fly across the Atlantic Ocean uh, <laughs> with someone trailing by seven shots. Um, anybody else that interested you that maybe didn't play as well as hoped? It kind of seemed like Victor Hovland had something going late on Saturday and then kind of, you know, exited stage left on Sunday pretty early. Scotty, Scotty Scheffler, who's been in the top 12 for every single event uh, as long as time, never really had it, but played well on Sunday. I would like to say I would like to demand an apology from Matt Fitzpatrick for losing to his brother by four shots. Um, I thought maybe he shouldn't have helped him get into the open uh, because then he ended up losing to him by a significant amount. Cam, the defending champion, finished tied tied for 33rd at one over thing a little disappointing especially with how confident he was coming into the week and at his press conference like multiple times said you know i'll have that thing or something along the lines of wanting to have the claret jug pack on sunday night talked about brooks t64 um it seemed like he was gonna be in it he played well on day one and then had it go in a little bit on day two and then faded very quickly on the back nine and then guys who missed the cut Colin Morikawa, Keegan Bradley, Tony Finau, Sam Burns, all Ryder Cup hopefuls, Shane Lowry, Phil Mickelson, and then JT and DJ, the absolute, you know, stinkers of the week. Anybody in in the guy, you know, the plethora of guys I just mentioned who was interesting to you for their maybe not so good performance? Yeah, I mean, I think Justin Thomas is the one that everyone kind of came away from the week talking about. Um, if you told me a year ago that he would be leaving the Open Championship with his Ryder Cup status uh, somewhat in question, 
Um, I personally think his spot on the team is safe, but it, it is a question. Now, um, I would not have believed you. I simply would not have believed you. Um, he has just been such a stalwart for this team. His game has been so consistent. What's happened these last couple of months has been just absolutely unfathomable. Um, I mean, hopefully he finds it this week at the 3 a.m., but it was really, really striking to see how poorly he played, how just out of sorts he seemed from the beginning. Um, and now he's got to try to find some semblance of a game before Rome uh, to make, you know, Zach Johnson and the rest of the U.S. Ryder Cup captains feel like they are justified in giving him a captain's pick and what is a really crowded American, you know, back end of guys who could be on this team and are fighting for a spot. So while I think his spot is still pretty safe, um, it was it was shocking to see how poorly he played, particularly after, a, you know, a really poor performance at the U.S. Open. It's borderline sad. Uh, I think it was Friday when he was on 18. I think he went bunker to bunker. That was it, it's it's almost sad watching him. But I, I have no doubt he'll get back. Um, one more person I wanted to ask you about, James Minwoo Lee. Your pick to win this week. I think uh, 71, 68, 72, 75. Did you pay attention at all after he was your he, he was your pick to win? What happened? I paid close attention to him. I thought I thought he played really well in the early week. He's another one of these guys, like you know, we talked about Tom Kim. He's really young. He doesn't have a lot of experience yet. And so when the moment gets big, you can see it gets a little big for him. Um, I personally I'm I'm like extremely bullish on his long-term chances as as a pro golfer. He's just he's got just an insane amount of ability. Uh, Jason Day actually talked about this, I think, on Friday evening, um, just about how talented he is and about how much uh, how much, you know, skill he has and how he's still kind of learning to refine all of it. Um, I, I liked him to win at Hoy Lake solely because I just wanted to watch him hit two irons the whole week. Like that was really all I was interested in. Um, but yeah, he uh, he was he he played impressively i thought especially you know for a guy of his age and relative experience i think he's got to get a couple wins on the pga tour before we can really seriously be talking about him as like a major championship contender but he's going to be in the mix at a lot of these events because he has the ball striking ability he can play a lot of different shots he's a really smart player He's just kind of learning to put all of it together. So keep your eyes out on him. I was obviously bummed to see my pick did not work, but uh, especially after this, the 75 on Sunday, I kind of pushed him a little further down the leaderboard. Um, but at the same time, my uh, my optimism and my confidence in him remains as high as ever. I'm keeping my eyes on his mock next. I got to find where to buy one of those things. Those things are incredible. I need one for yeah. myself. I this yeah I talked about is. this I I talked about the sibling rivalry with the Fitzpatrick's you know his sister has two majors uh, uh on the women's side of things so that's got to be motivating yeah. as well. Totally, the two of them are great too. Both Minji and Minwoo, I've I've dealt with a, a couple different uh a couple different stops along the way, um and both of them are great. But Minji is so different. Like I mean, Minwoo kind of loves the he loves the to put on this alter ego of woozy and like, you know, look like he's like rising up everyone on the golf course. And he's got these crazy hype videos that the PGA tour shout out Jake and Muhammad um, are, you know, putting together pretty, pretty intensely. Um, but yeah, he, he puts on this alter ego, but, um, but yeah, both of them are 
supremely talented golfers. I love watching both of them play. And I think the sky's the limit for both of them. It's very, very cool. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly about Royal Liverpool, the setup of the golf course quickly before we get to Ryder Cup stuff. Um, internal OB was a hot topic coming into the week. I personally kind of scoffed at it at the beginning, um, but I actually kind of enjoyed it. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And then um, the only other thing I wanted to ask was, I think on Thursday with the bunkers, a lot of balls were rolling up into the lip. We saw like John Rum, Tony Finau, a couple other guys kind of have to chip it back to the center of the bunker. And then they changed the way they raked them, I think, going into Friday and the rest of the week, which I didn't appreciate. Like, I wanted more chaos. I thought it was a lot of fun. So just quickly, your your thoughts on the internal OB and then uh, the bunkers. Uh, internal OB was epic. It was so great. Um, something that we need to be emphasizing, particularly if the PGA Tour is going to uh, push back against this ball or rollback, is the idea that um, – internal OB should be everywhere on the PGA tour. Uh, if you want to take a crazy line off the tee in the hopes of giving yourself a really short wedge into a green, that's awesome. Like good for you, but also you should risk the fact that a miss hit is going to leave you with the lost ball. Um, like that's just simply in my opinion, like that's just the way it should be. Um, I loved how it was. I thought it was, I thought it was totally fair. Uh, it's a major championship. You're being asked to execute a specific golf shot. If you don't do it, you're penalized. It's that simple. Like this is, that was much to do about nothing in my opinion. Um, I, I, you know, I really appreciate you saying that James, because this is a total vindication for me because I said this like basically exactly that same thing last week. And <laughs> I was scoffed. I was scoffed at by Braden. <laughs> Brayden, I don't mean to, uh, I don't mean to, I don't mean to push back against you here, but um, I just admitted that I came around on it and Diesel still had to go for the, for the gut shot. That's fine. <laughs> it was fun to watch. I thought, I thought it was very entertaining. Although I think I agree with you on the bunkers. Um, my feeling, my general feeling is that if it's going to become a major storyline in a tournament week, um, generally the governing bodies will try to accommodate to the players to keep the focus on the tournament and i think that that is ultimately like pretty wise uh process for approaching a major at the same time i wouldn't mind it if they had kept the bunkers really tough you know it seemed like that was that was really the biggest defense of the golf course all week um so by changing the bunkers they did make it a little bit easier for players but ultimately like most of the guys we spoke to said they didn't notice that there was any difference in the bunkers from Thursday to Friday or Friday to Saturday or Saturday to Sunday. So while there was a lot made of the change, I I didn't think that it actually made like a really significant difference on the tournament. I think this was more like one of those situations where um, the players definitely complained about it. The RNA realized a small change was not going to dramatically shift the golf tournament um, for the, for better or worse. And so they kind of made the adjustment. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I'm in support of, of, you know, hazards being hazards and all of those things. Like, I, I think that that's fair. I think just in this instance, it was probably the path of least resistance for the RNA. And I certainly, certainly understand that. Got it. Ryder cup. All right. I think that, I think that's all from the open brain. You, you have anything else to add or are, are we, are we done with the open? I think we touched on everything. I'm ready to talk some, some team golf. It was a great major season. Uh, some great winners. 
what, three Americans won. So good for the U.S. And, and all three of them, I would say, likely to be on the U.S. Ryder Cup team. I It's in, it's hard to say who is a lock right now. I mean, Fred Couples went out. I, I, I don't know if that was you who wrote about that, James, or it was on, uh, it was um, on your website. Um, about what Fred Couples said uh, the other night on on SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio, that you can probably expect to see Jordan Spieth. You can probably expect to see Max Homa in Italy. Um, and I think he name-dropped Cam Young as well, which I thought was pretty interesting. I know Cam Young is eighth in the points right now, but you, know, you talked about it earlier, he can't putt. Um, and he's also never won uh, on the PGA Tour before. So I, I guess we could start with the U.S. team. What are your feelings on, you know, those fringe guys? I think it's pretty safe to say you, Scotty Scheffler has already qualified, which is kind of crazy on July 28th to say that there has already been an official announcement that Scotty Scheffler has qualified. Patrick Cantley, Xander Schauffele are pretty, pretty locked in. Wyndham Clark and, and Brian Harmon. Um, I would have, to, I'm pretty sure Brooks will be on the team. I know, I don't know who it was that was writing that, Oh, what happens if Brooks falls out of the automatic qualifier spots? Cause he has no more qualifying events. I feel like he'll still be on the team. And then you have those guys, Spieth, Homa, Ricky Fowler, Colin Morikawa, who hasn't won anything since I, I believe the fall of 2021, Keegan Bradley, who has won twice on tour, Cam Young, who I mentioned, Sam Burns, and then JT, uh, who we talked about. And then Tony Finau has also really fallen down the rankings. And I would say it's probably pretty much out of the question that DJ will be on the team based on his major performance at the open. What, what are your thoughts on these fringe guys and, and how the U S is going to shape up come the end of September? All right. So I know there's been a lot made of Kepka, but I think he's going to be on the team. I'm looking at the rankings right here. And this is what I'll, the, these are the guys I'll say are locks. Scheffler obviously qualified already. He's going to be there. Wyndham Clark's going to be there. Brian Harmon's going to be there. I think Kepka is going to be there. Shoffley and Cantley, I think, are going to be there. And Max Helma, I think, is going to be there. After that, Jordan Spieth, I think, is highly likely to be on this team. Um, and then that brings us to eight players. So we've got four spots left for some combination of Cam Young, Keegan Bradley, Morikawa, Ricky Fowler, Sam Burns, Justin Thomas, and Denny McCarthy. Um, it's a lot of good players for only four spots. Um, I think Cam Young is going to be on the team. He's played, he's played well enough to be there. I'm not sure that he's a great fit for match play, but that's going to be a decision that Zach Johnson is going to have to live with one way or the other. Um, didn't I think, he finish second in Austin though? Didn't he, wasn't he the runner up at the match play at, at Austin country club? He played well. I forget exactly where he finished, but I just, my general feeling is like, I know, I don't think he played particularly well at the president's cup. I know he didn't play particularly well at the President's Cup. He doesn't putt particularly well for a U.S. team looking for like their first win on European soil and like God knows how long. Um, I just don't. I'm I'm not a I'm not a believer in uh, n- not a believer in picking players who don't fit that style. And while I think that like Cam is an extremely talented player, like I, I do wonder about what his fit is. So. But I think, yeah, I think he he finished second at the match play. Do you know who do you do you remember who won that? Which this is really interesting. Who won the match play? It was uh, God. I remember it was Scotty, Rory, and uh, 
I was, mm-hmm. was it Sam Burns who won? It was Sam Burns, yeah. which is so weird because it feels like nobody's talking about Sam Burns for the Ryder Cup, and he won the only match play event on tour this season. Yeah, that's funny. I completely forgot about that until you just said that. Because um, I, I remember it looked like we were going to get the Scotty Rory death match for, to win it, and then they, they both of them folded. They both lost in the um, semis, yeah. But, yeah, I'm not sure that Sam actually has a spot on this team, too, because if we give Cam Young a spot, that brings us up to nine. Then then I think Ricky Fowler is probably a good bet to get a look solely because he's going to be a good, like, culture guy on the team. Um, And I think Justin Thomas is a good fit. So that brings us to 11 players. And left out of that is Finau, Morikawa, Burns, and McCarthy – um and keegan and keegan who's played really really well this year too and would like give his soul to be on this u.s team um so i don't know i mean that's i i am not envious of of zach johnson for having to make that decision um and i'm not sure kind of what direction he's going to look when it comes to that stuff um but yeah, that that's gonna be tough. There's there are a couple guys there who you can make a really good argument for any of them. Um, I think I would take Keegan in that instance, but I mean there there are no shortage of good players there um in the mix. I feel like it's hard to leave Morikawa at home. I understand he hasn't what he hasn't won in a while. He had that hasn't collapse. played well in a while. Right. Uh well I he played well in Detroit. He was in the playoff in well, Detroit. I, I mean it is still I mean, Detroit. Yeah. Um, I, I like, it's hard to differentiate between like the name and the intimidation factor of going over to Europe versus like, oh, this person has actually played well. I think Ricky has proven consistently that he's played well enough over a long, over a three month or four or five, six month period that I would say it's pretty much a lock that Ricky will be on the team. And I don't, I don't think anybody's upset about that. I think it's just surprising how how far he's come i think the more interesting thing is that we're sitting here debating oh these these big names of morikawa and thomas and burns for the last few spots and then you go over to the european side and and you're debating for the last few spots between uh the hoy guards adrian moronk yannick paul and and those players where it's like oh you know these aren't guys you see often on the PGA tour. So from an American perspective, it's like, Oh, we're just debating still between, you know, major champions. While uh, the guys they are going to be going against on the back end of the European team are guys who've only played on the DP world tour. But that is precisely the reason the U S has not won in Europe in 30 years. So I'm curious to hear your, your take on how much of a difference, it does make that there are major champions who might make up the back end of this roster, but that hasn't proven anything over the past you know, 20 plus years of the Ryder cup in Europe. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Americans should be terrified of, of the Europeans right now. I think they should be absolutely like scared, scared to death about, about the team that the Europeans are forming. They've got a ton of really good players uh, they're in a much deeper position than we thought they were six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, or two years ago in Whistling Straits. Um, they are simply going to be a good team this year with a lot of guys who are playing good golf right now, particularly at the very top end of their roster, which is something that we did not see at Whistling Straits in 2021. Um, 
when you look at the bottom of the roster, I listed this guy in a column I wrote earlier this week, sort of a comatose sleeper. He's not, he's not like an extreme sleeper to make the team, but Adrian Moronk has a win at Marco Simone and a second place finish at Marco Simone in the last three years. Um, he's been playing really good golf all year. He is a very talented player and he's the classic player that the Europeans will take on their roster. who will go three, one and one. And, you know, in for the week and will cause hell for a group of Americans who is trying to play a U.S. style of golf at a non-U.S. courts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think this is going to be a much closer Ryder Cup than the than the odds makers are giving it or that the media is generally giving it. Um, I think there's been this general perception that the Americans are just going to roll like they did at Whistling. Um, and on paper, they have a much better team, but on paper, they always have a much better team. And this year, unlike at Whistling Straits in 2021, we're seeing a lot of the issues that have arisen for the U.S. in the past, which is these are a lot of guys who are not playing particularly well leading into this tournament. It's a lot of guys who uh, do not have a style of play that fits the sort of European traditional Ryder Cup style. And when you think about court setup and all of those things, you at least want to have a group of guys who's who's feeling comfortable and confident leading into the week. We haven't seen that uh, from, you know, probably half of this U.S. roster. So while I still think the Americans will be favored um, and justifiably so, I don't think there's enough being made of, about, you know, the role that, that the Europeans uh, could have here and particularly about the strength of the European roster, which is much, much stronger. U.S. minus 160, Europe is plus 175. I think I expected it. I hadn't looked at them in a while prior to that. I think I expected the lines to be a lot more drastic. That feels like a lot closer than it's being made out to be. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on on Ludwig on Europe? Do you have any? You think they take him? I think he'll be on the roster. Yeah. Um, uh, like maybe this is like semi-informed speculation, but. I know that uh, Luke Donald has played a series of practice rounds with with Ludwig over the span of the last couple months. Um, I think he's a sort of like young, super talented player who would thrive in a Ryder Cup setting. I think young players generally tend to play well in this event because it's a chance to kind of like make a name for yourself. Um, and you can be like young and brash and crazy and like, you know, it can kind of pay off for you. Um, so yeah, I, th I think he'll wind up on the roster. I'm, I'm a little torn about what the final construction is going to look like, but I don't know. There's, there's a part of me that thinks that, uh, that the Europeans have their eyes on him. I saw him at travelers a, a couple of weeks ago and stood behind him on the range and watched him hit balls for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And I, it was just watching how straight and how high and how far he hits the ball. It was was just a spectacle. And I mean, he is a a big guy, like a Scheffler DJ, like six three, um, an intimidating presence. And especially for, you know, a young guy, you probably want to get him started at a home rider cup. Think as Scotty Scheffler in 2021, how much success he had being the last guy probably picked on the team. And then, you know, beating John Rahm on Sunday in singles, maybe propelled him to where he is at this point. So if you're the U S though, is there someone who you think, you know, 
they can play well as kind of like that pest or intimidator on the road, like someone like a, a Poulter or a Sergio was for Europe over the past decade or so. Because in 2018, JT was kind of that guy, beat Rory on Sunday, um, and, and was maybe the, the only guy in the U.S. that actually showed something because of the struggles of a lot of the captain's picks. Is there someone maybe people aren't thinking of that could be that that kind of thorn in Europe's side in a road Ryder Cup like like Europe has had over the past handful of years? Man, put on this team. If that's what you want, Bradley on this team. That guy is gonna bring the heat. He is absolutely going to bring the heat. JT, you said. Oh, Keegan. Keegan Bradley. Oh, sorry, you cut out for a second. We missed that. Keegan. Right. Okay. Put, put Keegan Bradley on this Ryder Cup team. That was what I said. Put him on the team. He is going to razz some people up. He's going to bring all of that New England, Boston sports fan energy. Um, yeah, he's he he is the perfect, perfect fit to be on this roster. Yeah. But if, if that's what you're looking for, he's the guy. There's, there's not even a second thought. I could see it coming from JT again, too. Like, it, it wouldn't shock me at all if, you know, he starts playing better over the course of this next month or so um, towards the end of the season and on, is on a bit of an upturn, like it's still a question mark for the tournament. I think they take him and he gets there and is playing a lot better than he is now and just gives them nightmares when no one really expects him to because we've seen him do it before. He's just kind of got that personality and he's too good of a player not to get back on the upswing. And I think he could give them a, a lot of problems again, when people probably won't expect him to coming into that, that tournament. What do you know about the course, James? Have you seen it? How, is there anything you've seen about this course? And from what I've heard, it seems like it's, I, I watched, I think it was, uh, a, I forget who put the video up, but I believe it was, uh, Casper Ruud and Taylor Fritz played a three-hole match there, the tennis players, um, like a, a tennis a tennis Ryder Cup there because they're both golfers as well. Um, what do you know about the course? I, I know, Obviously, I'm not expecting you to know what the, the setup is going to be like, but from everything I heard, it, it sounds pretty crazy, pretty funky. Just waiting here to reconnect, struggling with my Wi-Fi a bit here. That's okay. Can you hear uh, me? Yeah, we got yeah, you. We got you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I visited the golf course back in uh, early May. I was just happened to be in Rome on doing some personal travel. And uh, I said, all right, I can't come all the way to Rome and not see this golf course. So I drove out there. Um, I think the course is going to be very narrow. It's going to be very green. Um but it's it's pretty uh it's pretty pretty classic European Ryder Cup setup. I'd be up honestly. Um it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a tough challenge for for the best players in golf. I think the the uh Americans in particular are gonna find again that if they can find the fairways, they're gonna be in a really good position. Um, but if they're not gonna find the fairways, there's gonna be a lot of danger waiting in the rough and 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 some of the hazards. I guess still a lot of time to go before we get to the Ryder Cup, but if you had to go on record now, 
saying who wins. You can give a score if you want, but just overall winner. Where which way are you leaning? I think the U.S. wins like sixteen fourteen or something like that. Like I think it's going to be really close. Um, really, really close. You think you're to go on the record? Yeah, I I do think the U.S. is going to win. I would be uh, I, but I do think it'll be close. Like James, said. I think it'll be, I think it'll be between one and two points. It'll be a one, a one point victory, a one and a half point victory, maybe a two point victory. I think it'll be close, but I just feel like the talent of the U.S. is too strong. Um, I mean, waiting to see something from JT. I just checked the the scores at the three M Open. I mean, if he doesn't play well this week or next week, he's gonna miss all three playoff events. Um, so then I don't know what kind of golf he's going to be playing if he doesn't play in any of the playoff events. So I, I, I need to see something either at 3M or at Wyndham next week, but but we'll see. But I do still think the U.S. is going to win. Uh, James, we couldn't can't thank you enough for, for spending time here on this Friday morning um, and, and really appreciate it. You can, you can please go check out all of James's work on golf.com. Every time that I see there's a new article up, it's, it's one of the things I do within five minutes of see of getting that notification. Um, where, where can people find your, your, all of your work, your, your Twitter and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. You can throw me a follow on the Godforsaken app of Twitter. Uh, um, what, what, what app is it? Who can say? Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure what it's called anymore, but uh, all my handles are the same. It's at James Colgan 26. Um, you can follow me along. I will be sharing all my work, um, my sarcasm and my snark. It'll all be available on one place for you to find. So yeah, get, check it out. Um, but thank you guys for having me. This has been a, this has been a blast. Made me feel very old speaking to some Syracuse people. Um, but I think that's generally a good thing for me as well. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you, sir. Of course. Can't thank you enough for the time. We'll be back next week. You know, we, we usually, James, do this segment called the overcorrection, where we overcorrect and we talk about things that aren't related to golf. We didn't do that today. Next week, we have a very special episode planned uh, regarding succession. So stay tuned for that. Um, it, sh- it should be really, really exciting. I don't, did you watch Succession, James? Uh, I regret to inform you both. I still have the final episode remaining of Succession. I've been the trying to unbelievable, watch unbelievable. So does I've... Brayden just? So that's Brayden has been sitting on watching the final episode for four weeks. I gotta be honest. I... I didn't. I didn't. I haven't loved the show. Like it, it really flamed out for me towards the end. I've enjoyed it, but I, uh, I made a pact that I would not finish watching it until. Uh, until I, you know, saw my uh, my significant other, mm. and the two of us have been doing a lot of travel in the last two months, so it's been wildly delayed. I'm I'm embarrassed to admit that I still haven't seen the end of the show, um, but hopefully I should have by the time you're recording next week. I should have a should have seen the finale, so I'll report back to you guys with my uh, with my performance. Please I don't do. have as good uh, I don't have as good of a reason, but I just haven't yeah. gotten around to it. Yeah, you're just, super you're just lazy. You're just You're just lazy, Uh, but we'll watch it on Sunday. Um, All right. That will do it for this episode of the double cross. Thank you all very much for listening. And you can check out our new Instagram account at the double cross pod. Please go give us a follow. Check out everything we got going on there and our personal Twitter handles as well. Mine is uh, at Ethan G Frank Braden, your Twitter. 
Oh, you're muted. Up, oh, we can't hear you. There we go. Uh, Braden Reed six. Thank you. Uh, second time's the charm. Check out everything out there, and we will see you next week talking about succession. Have a good one, everyone.